The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It's Thursday, December 17th. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and we're broadcasting live on a crisp but beautiful afternoon here in Palo Alto, California. Over the last couple of weeks, early admissions decisions have gone out to seniors all over the country. I know because I've been getting lots of happy emails from my students and a couple that are a little bit more disappointing. Um, If you're concerned because you haven't gotten the results you're looking for, I strongly recommend you go back into the archives to listen to last week's show. Beth Heaton and Kara Courtois talked about triaging the application process after an early deny and how you can adjust your plans to get the results you want. So I strongly recommend taking a look at that. Of course, if you're a junior or younger, there's still quite a ways to go, and we're here every week at 4 Eastern, 1 Pacific to help you find your way through a confusing admissions process. Later in today's show, we'll be discussing entry requirements for pharmacy programs for those who are inclined towards this unique field. We'll also provide a great deal of information about using your income to calculate the EFC for your family. But first, we'd like to continue our high school plan series with a foray into admissions for the pre-med applicant. To do so, I'd like to welcome my talented colleague, Julia Jones, a former senior admissions officer at Brandeis and current admissions consultant with College Coach. Welcome back to the show, Julia. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ian. I'm really glad you're here. Now, uh, Julia... Everyone at College Coach knows you as our list guru because you lead the team that develops college lists for our students, and you do phenomenal work putting those lists together. And uh, a lot of times we get students who ask us to include schools with the pre-med major on their college list, but that's not quite as easy as it sounds. It's not really a sort of a plug-and-play deal where we see pre-med and all of a sudden this list of schools popped up. Why is it a challenge to find pre-med schools for students when we're putting a list together? Right, it's true. It's, I, I see a ton of, you know, pre-med requests, and, and you know, it's a pretty popular choice. Um, but it's, it's not a major at, at most schools. So, you know, when we're searching for schools that have a particular major, pre-med doesn't often come up. So we'd be excluding, you know, probably 80 to 90% of colleges that, that where you could do a, you know, do be pre-med. Um, so I almost always will add, you know, biology or chemistry so that, you know, to really capture schools that have strong science programs, and also strong pre-med, but not, again, it's not a major, and I think that's a big misconception. Um, you know, if you're pre-med, you can pretty much major in almost anything, um, but, uh, but it is, it's, you know, but it's usually you're not, you're not necessarily majoring in, in that per se. Right, and this is something that, you know, when I was in admissions, I worked at Reed, and is a small liberal arts college, you know, very similar to, to Brandeis yeah. in a lot of ways, and so 
I had students coming up to me all the time telling me that they wanted pre-med. And it was right. I immediately had to sort of say, we don't have pre-med. But <laughs> when a student does say that he or she is pre-med, that does indicate something. It signals something right. to us as admissions readers. So essentially when a student says they're pre-med, what does that mean? It basically means that they're following a track of courses. It, it, for some schools, it is kind of a program or, you know, or a, a track where you, and there's an advising system that goes along with it. Um, but it's basically, you know, you're taking um, courses, the coursework that med schools are going to require. And that's usually, you know, a year or two of biology, um, a year or two of chemistry, usually calculus, statistics. There's often an English requirement as well, surprisingly. Um, so, uh, so I think it, it, it's a track of courses. But it, and, and typically, I think most students will often major in a science because the courses obviously overlap. Um, right. But again, you can be an English major, you can be a theater major and still do pre-med as a track. It's not as common. Um, but that's really what it means. It means that they're taking courses that are uh, and eventually are going to be um, applying to med school um, in their junior year of, of college. Right. And, and that's something I really try and reinforce with students. I say, look, if, if you're telling me that you're pre-med, that basically says that you'd like to go to medical school one day, right? right? It, it doesn't tell me what it is that you plan to major in. It doesn't say a whole lot about what you're actually going to be studying during your college yeah. career. Um, I actually had a friend who uh, created her own major at her sinus college called Peace and Justice Studies. Uh, mm-hmm. And she was pre-med and yeah. uh, later went to Oregon Health and Sciences University for medical school and is now a resident for the University of California, Davis as a surgeon. But, uh, you know, she was pre-med, but certainly not a biology or a chemistry major. Right. Um, exactly. and, and so that's an important thing, I think, for students to understand. Now, even if I am, you know, if I know that pre-med's not a major, um, mm-hmm. I still have a goal of going to medical school a little bit later on. And that might change a little bit about how I approach my high school coursework. Um, what are some things that I maybe need to be thinking about if medicine is going to be a part of my future objectives? Right. Well, I think that high school coursework um, uh, is, is really important. First of all, you know, regardless of whether you're going to med school or, you know, wherever right. your path takes you, yeah. you know, as we've said many times on this program in different segments, you know, taking a challenging curriculum to prepare you for the rigor of college and to get into college, because um, that's what colleges are looking for, is, you know, you're showing that you're cha- you're, you want to be challenged. And so, so I think taking rigorous courses, but I think in, in pre-med, for students who are, often they will say on their application, as well that, you know, they, they have an interest. Many colleges, even though it's not a major, will ask, you know, are you interested in a, pre, a pre-professional program like pre-med? Or at Brandeis, I know I read a lot of applications where students would indicate that. Um, sometimes they would include it in their essay. Um, and so I was always looking for that, you know, kind of consistency of, okay, so if I'm seeing a student who's telling me or who's indicated that he has an interest, he or she has an interest in, in pre-med, um, but then I see a transcript where a student may not have taken um, three or four, or rather four years of a lab science, or or their weakest grades are in math and science. I think that you know that's where you want to sort of have that that level of consistency. So for students for coursework, it's really focusing on all areas, but you know obviously making sure that you're you're doing all you can in those areas where that are most relevant. Um, that are whether it's AP courses or honors courses, courses that are also going to prepare you for the rigors of 
of a pre-med track. Um, those courses right. are deliberately rigorous in college. They're trying to, you know, to not, not necessarily weed students out, but they want to really make sure that you are prepared for the challenges of med school. And so, you know, back up a little bit more and that the courses in high school should be, you know, getting you ready for that. Yeah, I think that's actually a, a great point and a, and a really important one that if you see, you know, these applications come together and they give you a picture of who the student is. And if you see medicine, medicine, medicine throughout the application, but then you look yeah. at that transcript and you see C's in chemistry, B minuses yeah. in biology in, in like a regular track course, you might not have the most you know, confidence that a student's going to be able to come in and handle the college level of organic chemistry, right? Exactly. So. And, and that might be an indication to you as a student that uh, either you need to you know, figure something out about science or maybe, you know, medicine is not necessarily going to be the right thing for you. Right. Um, yeah, and it's, it's tough. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. No, I, just, I remember it as, as an undergraduate at Brandeis, I had a lot of friends who were pre-med and, you know, suffering through with them, you know, uh, vicariously rather uh, with them because I was not a pre-med student, but suffering with them as they, you know, as they got through organic chemistry, which was, you know, I, you want it to be rigorous. You want, I want my doctor to have really gotten through right. that. And, exactly. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I think for, you know, for many of them, even those students who were, you know, that really were the A students and maybe even took AP chemistry, it was still a really, really tough class. So, um, so I think that that's, that's colleges want to make sure that they're admitting students who are, are, you know, are aware of the challenges and can handle the challenges for sure. Yeah, definitely. Organic chemistry was reputed to be one of the two hardest classes at Reed, which is a place that has, you know, notorious for having very difficult classes. Yeah, and and yeah. so that was something that you, you got to do that if you want to be a doctor, if you want to apply to medical school. And so knowing that I think is important. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, not just, it's not just being a good scientist that makes for a good doctor, right? There, there's something about the, the day-to-day work of being a doctor, of the day-to-day mm-hmm. requirements of being in medical school. Um, that means that it doesn't necessarily fit everyone. Um, right. What would you say to a student, you know, in terms of learning a little bit more about medical, uh, medical fields, yeah. um, how right. they can sort of get exposure to it outside mm-hmm. of the classroom, since there isn't really a chance to do it within the high school? Right, right. It's true. And I think that's where extracurricular activities come into play as well, um, because I think that for many students, while it's not required that you, you know, do these activities for to, to get into a school if you want to go pre-med, I think it can be really helpful um, to, to learn more about the field, to get some ex- uh, exposure. And, you know, volunteering is a great way to do that. I think um, many students look to volunteering at a hospital setting um, as, as their first kind of exposure to, to medicine. They've, they've maybe thought, okay, I want to be a doctor, and maybe they've got parents or, or family members um, who are who are physicians, and that can also be another great opportunity if you if you have family members or people in your in your circle, maybe you can shadow um, them as well. I think that can be also a great opportunity. So you know, volunteering, getting getting some some activities, um, some exposure to it, um, even just to sort of get a feel for it. As you say, the day to day life of, of a physician. It's not all glamorous, um, but you know, really kind of making sure that this is the right the right fit for you. Um, you know, unlike some fields, it's not a field where you have to, you know, you have to, uh, um, uh, you know, you, it's, you're not locked into it when you, when, if you go, because obviously it's not a major, but it is something I think the more prepared you are for, you know, for what you're getting into. Um, and you can also better articulate then your reasons why you want to go into medicine. Um, right. You know, many colleges will ask, not necessarily specific to pre-med, but they may ask, so why do you want to 
you know, why do you want, why are you studying what you want to study or why are you told us that you might want to go into medicine or you told us about a particular field? Why is that? Having some concrete experiences in high school, like volunteering, doing, even doing research, which can often be a part of, of that process. All of those things can, can really help you bolster your application as well. Um, right. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's it's certainly not expected that a 17 or 18 year old is going to know exactly what it is that they want to do for the rest of their life. But, you know, right. colleges are really looking for students to have some idea of the direction they want to go in um, and some yeah. reason to believe that that direction is the right one for them. And if even if you look at some of these uh, supplemental essay requirements, you know, the University of Texas asks about your career goals. Um, the <laughs> University of California asks about your dreams and aspirations. And so if you yeah. are, you know, really interested in medicine, sort of describing the support um, uh, that you've, or the support of your activities and sort of helping you to realize that dream, I think is really, really critical. Um, But I think it's also important to understand that the med school admissions process doesn't happen for another four years, right? Even if you're a high school senior. And uh, so these experiences can be great launch pads for getting more experience when you're at the college level because you have this foundation mm-hmm. on which to base your future development. Um, exactly. Yes. One, yes. You know, and one I of the that, things. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just saying. I think that yeah, it, it, it's it's that, and it's also you know it's it's giving you you know a lot of experience just in, again in the field. So yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that we had not talked about actually in, in preparation for this show um, that sort of occurred to me as I was thinking about this is um, different institutions, different colleges or universities as it relates to medicine. You know, I hear a lot of students that say, I want to go to Wash U as an undergrad because they have a great medical school, or I want to go mm-hmm. to Johns Hopkins because they have a great medical school. What's your understanding of the connection between the undergraduate institution and the medical institution? Is that the right thought process for a student to have there? Um, It's actually not. I I think that, first of all, I I don't necessarily think there's a correlation. um, But I I have also heard um, that, you know, the the opposite may be true is that, you know, that many med schools don't often want to admit students from the undergraduate institution that they're connected with. Interesting. You know, they're looking for diversity in their student body as well. So, you know, it's... It's, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, there's, there's a, there are two sides to that coin because you're going, if you're going to a school um, that has a great med school, there are going to be some really fantastic opportunities for you, perhaps even as an undergraduate, to, you know, perhaps do some, some volunteering or some work, some lab work, or to really get some, some great experience to put on your resume for whatever med school you want to go to. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I, I would say that I wouldn't necessarily target your undergraduate institution for because you want to go to that particular med school because, a, so much can change between, you know, senior year in high school and junior year of college when you're applying. Um, and, um, and also, it, it, again, it may not necessarily be the, the easiest or the best path if you do absolutely want to go to, to WashU Med School. Right. And, you know, when we talk about just any sort of pathway uh, for a student, we often talk about developing their credentials through their academics and their extracurricular profile, but also choosing the appropriate list of schools to which to send their applications. Like That's the match right. that sort of makes them have those options. When you're looking at a very specific type of outcome like medicine, are there any recommendations that you would make to a senior who's still putting his or her list together and maybe wants to go to medical school someday um, and is thinking about the right kind of college experience to have that would feed into that process? Sure. Yeah, I think that um, really looking for those schools that are going to provide, obviously, you know, first, first and foremost, you know, the academic preparation that you're going to need. I mean, I think that it's, you know, making sure that a school does have 
um, you know, a strength in, in the sciences so that you're able to, um, and where you're going to be as successful in, in those areas. But I, I think, you know, going to a school where you might have an opportunity to do research, um, you know, yeah, as an undergraduate, and that's not always, um, you know, it, it's uh, an opportunity for every school. So really being able to see, are there, are there opportunities for me to get involved even on an activity side of the fence too? At, you know, I know at Brandeis, yeah. um, you know, we had an, as, as many colleges do, you know, the, and the, our emergency, our EMTs were all, that was a student-run service. And so you had to be certified, and, um, and that was a great way. Most of the students who were um, part of, of uh, BEMCO, as we called it, were, um, you know, were pre-med. And, you know, what, what better experience can you have than, than doing that? So I think really looking to find, okay, how can I, um, you know, best, you know, where, what institution, where, what are the opportunities I'm going to be having outside of just taking the classes? You know, what other, right. what other chances can I have to really provide a strong application to med school? Yeah, and I've, I've talked to some students, for example, who are interested in rice, and, and I'll say, you know, if you're interested in medicine and, and you like science, rice is across the street from one of the biggest hospitals in the country. And, you know, yeah. you could go and get some experience there. So even thinking about outside yeah. of the curriculum, outside of the school, what are you going to have access to as you learn more about medicine, I think is really, really useful for students looking at colleges. Exactly. Sure, um, sure. One thing that was covered last week, um, we had uh, Mary Sue on to talk about joint programs, BSMD programs. Mm-hmm. Those are much more rigorous, as she explained last week in the show, and you can go listen to that in the archives. They're, sure. they're quite a bit more selective. Um, yeah. Would your advice to students, to high school students who are looking at those programs, change at all in terms of the kinds of classes they should be taking as a high schooler or the activities they should be engaged in as a high schooler if they're targeting one of those seven or eight-year accelerated medical programs? I don't think my advice would necessarily change, but I do think that I would really... Strength, it, it is strengthened. In other words, um, you know, because of the selectivity of those programs, you really have to be much, much more focused in terms of, you know, not just your academics, and those have to be obviously um, at a much higher level. Um, right. But I think for you know, for those programs, they are looking for students who have real demonstrated um, activities and a resume that really showcases, you know, their interests. So the you know, students who have um, who are already EMTs, and many students do that in high school, and I think that can be a really great. Um, uh, thing to have on a resume for for those BAMD programs, having some significant research opportunities or volunteer opportunities that really kind of go above and beyond, um, uh, you know, the, just the, the gen- for general admission, um, you know, having the opportunity to shadow, uh, you know, different aspects of health profession so that you have a, a really broad knowledge. Um, and I do think having, uh, you know, some additional activities, things that really sort of show your broadness so that you're, you know, you're not just narrowly focused on medicine, but you may have other activities that also highlight mm. different things that, that physicians are going to need. So I think it's, it's, it's just sort of taking it up a notch um, or more than a notch to, you know, yeah. really be competitive um, for those programs. But I think it's it's great advice because, you know, even if you decide that you're you're throwing yourself into medicine and you find out that it's not for you, it's probably better to have learned that a little bit earlier in the process than later once you sort of are already committed to um, a pre-med track at the college level or, or looking into a, a joint degree program. So the exploration yeah. is not good only insofar as it helps you with your app, but also in terms of the way that it helps you to understand whether medicine is the right thing for you. Absolutely, especially for those combined programs, which are, you know, extremely accelerated. You, you really have to know and be sure. And so, you know, what better way to do that than to get some hands-on experience to really, you know, to be able to bolster that or for it to turn you in a different direction if need be. 
Wonderful. Great. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining me on the show today. I think that was really phenomenal advice for students who are looking at at a pre-med track through college. Well, great. Well, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back with information to help you calculate your EFC. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Great. Welcome back to the show. Uh, before we move into our next segment, I want, to lot, I want to let all of our listeners know that we're interested in getting your feedback as we plan for future shows. Whether this is your first time listening or if you haven't missed an episode since we launched, we want to know what you'd like to hear from us. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover, uh, it would be great to hear a little bit about what your ideas are. So if you could point and click to www.getintocollege.com forward slash survey, We have a brief questionnaire that you can fill out to tell us a little bit about the information that will be most useful for you and for your children as they're working through this application process. In exchange for your feedback, we'll give you access to two free college coach guidebooks, avoiding the pitfalls of college essay writing and top 10 ways to find private scholarships. So a little bit of admissions and finance help there. Uh, We look forward to seeing what you dream up for future shows and are excited to hear you give your feedback. All right. My next guest is here to help us make sense of the EFC. 
those three letters attached to almost every single financial aid calculator on every college website. A lot goes into those three letters, and we've got Tara Piantanita Kelly here to help us make sense of it. Welcome, Tara. Yes, thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. So you've worked in financial aid all over the country for a variety of institutions, from Menlo College, which is actually just down the street, uh, Mm -hmm. to the Rochester (laughs) Institute of Technology. But let's start with something simple and universal. What's EFC? EFC. uh, Now, financial aid, uh, we have our own separate language. We speak as acronyms, and this (laughs) is an important acronym to know. Uh, EFC stands for Expected Family Contribution. And really, all it is is the measure of how much a student and his or her family, if it's applicable, can afford to contribute towards college for that one academic year. So it's a calculation. It's like a big equation. And it looks at a number of things. But income, of course, is one of the main drivers. So if you think about it this way, if you had two families that were sending one of their kids to college and one family made $500,000 a year and the other family made $50,000 a year, clearly the one that can contribute more to that that college year is going to be the one that has the higher income. So um, their EFC is going to be higher because of, of their higher income. And as I understand it, there are a lot of different factors that um, that go into the EFC, but income is the main driver of EFC. Is that right? That is true. Yes, it's, okay. it's a it's a very it's a it's a diverse calculation. It's a big equation, but yes, income is is kind of the main driver of it. And now, as far as EFC goes, and this is just sort of to satisfy my curiosity, is is the equation something that is standardized across? all colleges and universities, or is it going to be different depending on which school I'm looking at? Well, uh, I'm going to talk about the federal EFC first. Um, okay. So that every, I think I told you about acronyms. FAFSA is another acronym, <laughs> the Free Application right. for Federal Student Aid. And one of the things that the FAFSA does is it calculates your EFC, your expected family contribution, uh, for federal student aid. So that calculation, that equation is absolutely standardized. Um, it's public information, and it would actually take an act of Congress to change it. Uh, literally, I'm not even kidding about that. <laughs> so it won't um, be changing anytime soon, I expect. No. <laughs> <laughs> but then we also have some schools require an additional form called the CSS profile form, and that form also calculates an expected family contribution, and it is not quite as standard as the, the federal calculation. There are some tweaks that schools can make to that. So, um, so the, the federal calculation is absolutely standardized. Uh, the CSS the profile institutional calculation uh, can be modified. Okay, I got you. So typically when we're talking about EFC, we're talking about the FAFSA, but there are these other forms that come into play with the CSS profile, and they incorporate a variety of other different sort of variables into the calculation. That's, that's exactly okay. right. Great. Now, when I talk to uh, some families, um, you know, not most families, but but some families, I, I often hear uh, parents tell me, "Look, we don't, we're not going to qualify. I make too much money to qualify for aid." <laughs> um, and I, you know, I don't want to prod too much into that conversation because I don't want to start getting into, "Well, what was your income last year?" But um, how much income would be too much? for financial aid uh, to be available yes, to I get, family. I get that all the time. People will come, oh, they hear what I do for a living. Oh, you know, I, I make $200,000. Can I get financial aid? Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, and my answer is always yes. You And I, I say, even Bill Gates' kids could get financial aid. Now, there is no such thing as too much income to receive financial aid. 
But just keep in mind that the, the financial aid that they get is going to be in the form of non-need-based loans. But yes, you can always get financial aid no matter how much income you make. But if we're talking about non-need-based, uh, if we're talking about need-based grants, free money, then we have seen families with incomes as high as $220,000 receive need-based grants from some very expensive private schools. So um, I get a lot of families that ask me that, and I say, well, if, if you have any uh, doubt about um, whether you're, you'll qualify for need-based aid or not, you can run an expected family contribution calculator and see what your EFC is and compare it to the price of the school that you're looking at. That'll tell you right there if you're in the you know, need-based range or not. Gotcha. So, so let's say we're talking about a family that has an income of about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, right? So that's that's definitely underneath that sort of gray area, that line where where you may not qualify at around two hundred twenty. One hundred and fifty thousand, you're probably going to qualify for for aid, right? Um, mm-hmm. Will the EFC be too high there? Or what, you know, what's what does it look like if that's about what my family is making on an annual basis? Uh, you, you would think this would be an easy question, but it's not, and, and, and I'm going to tell you why. It's because the, the equation that calculates the EFC is so complex, there's so many moving parts, that just knowing the parents or the student's income isn't enough to answer the question. So I'll give you, for instance, what I mean about this. What right. if that family, they say, we, we have $150,000 of income, and it's a dependent student family, but they have a family size of eight, and four of those are in college at the same time. That oh, gosh. Family <laughs> contribution. Yeah, family. Exactly. That expected <laughs> family contribution for that one student is going to be much, much lower than yeah. you would you know, originally think. And now let's compare that to somebody else who has an income of $150,000. It's a single independent student who's going to, let's say, you know, a, a public school. Uh, his or her ESC would be probably too high to qualify for any need-based grant. So just just knowing the income isn't really enough to, to gauge whether you're going to qualify for need-based aid or not. Gotcha. So it's sort of like, you know, you know the numerator, but the, not the denominator, that kind of thing. You're doing a calculation <laughs> and you don't have all the information that you need. You can't solve exactly. for X unless everything else is known to you. Okay. That's so, exactly right. So when we talk about EFC, you know, I've I've heard a lot of uh, my fan finance colleagues talking about um, different types of income affecting the EFC in different ways, and and you know how that's going to to change what a family might qualify for. So whose income exactly is being looked at when we talk about calculating an, an EFC? Oh, okay, good good question. Now, for federal financial aid purposes. The FAFSA breaks students down into essentially two separate categories. They're, they they have dependent students and they have independent students. Dependent students are your typical, you know, just graduating from high school, living with mom and dad. Um, those are, you know, your traditional dependent students. And in that case, the calculation is going to ask for the student's income and assets, and it's also going to ask for the student's parent's income and assets. Now, when that student completes their bachelor's program and decides to go on for a master's program, now all of a sudden the FAFSA is going to consider that student independent because they're, you know, studying at the graduate level. And then for that student, they're not going to ask for the parent's information at all. They're just going to ask for the student and the student's spouse's income if, if the student is married. 
What is the dependent definition going to be based on whether the student is claimed on the parents' tax forms? Oh, excellent question. About 30 years ago, the answer would have been yes. <laughs> but no, they, that's not the case anymore. Uh, the, one of the first things that the FAFSA asks, and when you run an expected family contribution, it asks, is a series of questions about the student. Is the student you know, 24 years old as of this certain date? Is the student um, uh, married? Is the stu- does the student have a child that they support? Is the student a veteran? Is the student in, graduate, um, in a graduate program? A series of questions. But it never asks about, is the student claimed on a parent's taxes? Uh, mm. that, that question is actually completely irrelevant for the financial aid process. Gotcha. So, so my tax status or my kid's tax status doesn't factor into this at all. So no, that where did a loophole? Yeah, a loophole that was closed a couple of decades ago. <laughs> Interesting. So, is there a scenario in which a student could be going to graduate school as a dependent student, or are you necessarily an independent student once you graduate from college? You are. One of the questions on the FAFSA is, you know, as of the beginning of this academic year, will you be studying at the graduate level? And as soon as the student answers yes then the FAFSA won't ask any parental information. Interesting. So, it has, so it's not based on the age of the student. It's going to be based on the level of education that that student's receiving. Well, it can be based At least on in the this age case. as well. Yeah, it's based case, on the age. Yeah. So what's the, like what's the, the age cutoff going to be? Uh, the age cutoff is 24. Okay. So, so I'll if, share with you. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying maybe you've got an example that I'm trying to just wrap my head around all the, the little details here because they're, they're pretty interesting. Yeah. So I have a daughter who is a senior in college, and she just turned 21. So she will be graduating from college when she's 21, and she will start graduate school when she's 22. So normally, okay. a 22-year-old student would be considered dependent. But because she was, is going to be in, enrolled in a graduate program, she's going to be considered independent even though she's only 22. Okay, so, and then, you know, for a, let's say we have a 25-year-old student who's never gone to college before, uh, graduated from high school, has maybe worked or served in the armed forces, and is coming back, uh, you know, at age 25 to begin their college career. Does the EFC then consider them to be a dependent or an independent student? Nope. Well, they will be considered an independent student because one of the questions would be, you know, as of the beginning, as of January 1st of this year, are you 24 years old? And as soon as they answer yes, or 24 years old or older, as soon as they answer yes, and the parental information becomes, they don't even ask it. Now, so this this all determines like whose income goes into the the EFC calculator and determines what that EFC is going to be. Um, When we're looking at yeah, the, the income, is it all created equal? Um, the income from the student just sort of adds up uh, to the total value, or is there a different weighting process? I know that there's like a different weighting with savings, for example, but is there uh-huh. a different weighting when it comes to income? There is. Um, for the parental income, they look at adjusted gross income, and they look at uh, income earned from work. They take out some deductions like for taxes, uh, and then they also take out something called an income protection allowance, a very, very modest <laughs> allowance that mm. uh, they realize parents will have to, you know, cover costs of housing and food and transportation and whatnot for the family. So they take that out and uh, they add back in some untaxed income, income, such as if the parent had received some um, child support or, you know, 
um, some other kind of untaxed income, then they add that all together and take a portion of that. It's usually anywhere from 22 to 47 percent. Um, but when they look at the student's income, they look at it very differently. Uh, the student's income uh, is, first of all, I have a lot of families that say, you know, I know that if my student works, that it's just going to eliminate their eligibility for financial aid, so I'm just going to not have them work. And I, I'm going to kind of disagree with that because the first $6,300 that the student earns in a, in a calendar year doesn't count against their effective family contribution at all. Hmm. So, you know, tell them to go ahead and go out and get a job at McDonald's or, or Subway, you know, and go ahead. Right. That's totally right. fine. Um, but then another thing to keep in mind is uh, it looks at the student's income and also their untaxed income as well. So, And if grandma and grandpa want to give your student a $10,000, you know, uh, check to go to college, that's going to be considered income as well. And that gotcha. will put them over the $6,300 range. And then all of a sudden, it will cause a big increase in the expected family contribution. Interesting. So these are some things that you want to consider where all these sources of income are coming from in a given year and how they might change that EFC. Yes, uh, absolutely. And that's, that's where the expected family contribution calculator really comes in handy. Right. So how do I figure this out? I mean, we're talking about the nuts and bolts, but I don't think we're going to be throwing out any equations here over the radio. So how do I determine if my income is going to cause my EFC to be too high or going to put me into a position where I might qualify for need-based financial aid at a school I'm interested in? Well, we often send our families to the College Board EFC calculator, and you can just go into a search engine and then type College Board EFC calculator. And uh, it will it will bring you to that, and then you can the families can see exactly what information goes into calculating the expected family contribution, and they can see what their EFC is, and they can um, make tweaks to it. Oh, what if I have you know what if I made less income less, less this year? What if I decided not to um, you know defer my bonus? What if I decided to defer my bonus and instead of getting it this year I got it? you know, in the following year, how would that affect my EFC? You can do that. Uh, and once they determine what their EFC is based on, you know, all their information, they can then compare that to the cost of attendance at any of the colleges in the U.S. and determine right from there, oh, okay, well, my EFC is $40,000, and I'm looking at Harvard, which is 66, so uh, the difference is $26,000 in need-based eligibility based, at, based on going to Harvard. So that's what we encourage our families to do. Gotcha. That sounds great. And and as far as this EFC goes, it, it wouldn't be smart necessarily for me to count on the EFC being the same from year to year, right? Should, should I be on there using a calculator every year as my income changes just to get a sense of what I might qualify for? Or am I going to be yep. fixed into a particular uh, sort of tier at the start of the college career? Oh, it, your it, your EFC can change each year. If if uh, you're lucky enough to win the lottery one year, your EFC is going to go way up, and your eligibility for need-based aid is going to go way down. But that probably won't be such a bad thing if you just right. win the lottery. Yeah, <laughs> I think we trade winning the lottery um, for for a little bit of an increase in the EFC. Um, and one of the important things I think that I often hear from financial aid professionals uh, like those on our team is is listen, you know, the EFC isn't what you think you can afford. It's what this formula says you can afford, and, and it's standardized across the board. So even if a, a family that makes $500,000 a year says, we can't afford to you know, send our kids to college for this amount, that's not going to change the formula. That's exactly right. 
And I, I always tell our, our family, yeah, just make sure you're sitting down when you look at the the EFT calculator <laughs> because it might surprise you. <laughs> gotcha. And with the popularity of standing desks these days, I think that that's probably good advice for people to have and make sure that they're in a seat. Uh, any any parting words of wisdom uh, in the last 15 seconds or so about the EFC that uh, you'd like to share with our families? Well, uh, just the, the FAFSA opens up this coming January. So January 1st, it's available for this coming fall. So uh, put that on your calendars. Make sure you meet that deadline. And I know most parents will be up till midnight not to celebrate the new year, but just because they're excited <laughs> at the release of the FAFSA. So, yeah. <laughs> um, great. Thank you uh, so much for your time and your expertise, Tara. It was great to talk to you on the show today. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, folks, when we come back, we'll be talking all about pharmacy programs. So take two of these and call me in the, I mean, join me after a short break. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. For the second week in a row, we're delighted to welcome former Barnard and Whittier Admissions Officer Mary Sue Yoon to the show. Welcome, Mary Sue. Hi, Ian. Nice to be back. It's great to have you back. You were actually on just last week with Beth to talk about BSMD programs. 
the seven-year and the eight-year variety. And you've returned to help our listeners understand another niche program in medicine, uh, which is pharmacy. And we were actually just talking um, in the break there um, about the, the number of schools that even offer these programs is really, really small. So it really is a niche program. And I guess I, for those who are interested or um, maybe considering pharmacy, we should start with the big question, which is how does one become a pharmacist? What are the pathways towards that profession? Right. So generally to become a, a fully certified pharmacist, um, you do have to go and get a, a doctorate in pharmacy, and that is a four-year program. And so sort of the, the most traditional route is for a student to do a four-year undergraduate program, um, which could be in pharmacy or could be in sciences or something else, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but a four-year undergraduate program, bachelor's degree, and then a four-year doctor of pharmacy program. Um, and so uh, that that's sort of the traditional track that someone could do. Um, I believe in some states there's also sort of pharmacy technician uh, programs, which are sort of a lesser degree, but they would also, of course, be a lesser pay scale. And uh, usually at each pharmacy there has to be a, a certified licensed pharmacist sort of on uh, on shift at any time. So it has to be someone who has that doctorate in pharmacy um, there at all times. Gotcha. So in the standard path, I'm looking at a very similar sort of workload to what I would be looking at for medical school, four years right. undergrad and four years to get the, the doctorate in, in yep. pharmacy. Okay. Yep, exactly. Now, it, you know, as with those accelerated MD programs, there are also some accelerated pharmacy programs out there yeah. as well. And those are, you know, I think... Um, those are the ones that I find that students are most commonly asking me about, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the more traditional path. So how long are these programs? What are the options? What do they really look like from a mm-hmm. student's perspective when they're in one? Right. So I've had a few students who have gone through and, and be accepted to some of the accelerated pharmacy programs, and it is a really specialized track. Um, and so the accelerated programs, um, they're offered at sort of relatively few colleges in the U.S., um, but they could be cutting off two years on that uh, traditionally eight-year path. So some of the accelerated programs, the students would do two years of equivalent of undergraduate work, and then they'd go into um, their doctor of pharmacy kind of program at the beginning of their third year and then do their four years of pharmacy. Um, so it, it could be a six-year program. There are some also Temple um, and some other colleges have seven-year programs that would just cut a year off. Um, but they, I can see why, you know, it would be attractive to, to cut two years off of your schooling um, and, you know, sa- and the financial savings of that. But it has to be a student who sort of knows that this is what they want to do. Right. And, and so you're saying that the two years that you're saving is actually coming out of what would be the undergraduate career. And you're exactly. still doing roughly the same amount of time in that doctorate level. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is that accelerated program that's happening all on the same campus, right? You're not sort of um, switching institutions there, or do they have some joint programs? Um, many times it's it's all on the same campus or at least within the same city. Um, I believe there's a few programs in Philadelphia where they're coordinated programs where they don't stay on the exact same campus, but they're still, they're not moving across the state or, or going to, you know, someplace completely different. Um, which is actually different from what I was saying last week about the accelerated med programs, where oftentimes students do move to a completely different area. Um, so, but sometimes um, I'm thinking of some of the really specialized pharmacy programs. There's there's universities that kind of specialize in this, like 
Albany College of Pharmacy, Philadelphia, uh, University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, Massachusetts College of Pharmacy. So these are smaller schools that are particularly pharmacy schools, and they Mm. do have these accelerated offerings, and you would stay on that same campus for six years. So it's it's a a fast track through that in six years. But when you you go to a school that has pharmacy in the name of the school, you pretty much know what you're signing up for as well, right? I mean, that's that's basically what you're getting. Now, this decision to... Yeah, the full names of the schools are kind of pharmacy and health services, so sometimes sciences, and so sometimes they also have nursing programs. But mostly, yes, they're pharmacy. (laughs) Gotcha. Okay, good, good. So now, if you're looking at one of these accelerated programs, is that a decision that you make right out of high school, or can you still get into an accelerated program at a major university that might offer one after starting as maybe an undeclared student? Um, You can uh, still get into the program after you've started as an undeclared student. Um, If you are going to do that, it's most likely then going to be um, a seven- or an eight-year track as opposed to a six-year track. So there are some what they call guarantee programs, which is not really truly accelerated because it would take eight years. Uh, so you're not knocking off any time, but you're getting a guarantee to be in the pharmacy program. And so some of those programs would take students who are sophomores in college to apply to them, and then sort of their junior and senior year of their undergraduate years, they'd finish up the requirements and start to, to be in the pharmacy program. So it might it might knock a year off of the total time of education of higher ed, but it probably is not going to be a six-year program. The six-year program is a student really has to apply from high school because that's they have to be pretty well mapped out as to what they're taking for those first two years um, to be able to be on the track to start med school by the third year or pharmacy uh, school by the third year. I see. So there's there are very specific college courses that you have to take to be ready to do this this doctorate in pharmacy. Right. Um, so and that's great. So we we start there, at, but let's trace even back further. Now we talk about sort of a high school student that's looking at these accelerated programs. What do they need to have? What's what's their profile got to right. look like in order for them to be able to demonstrate that they're qualified for a PharmD program? Yeah. So, I mean, oftentimes I've found that students who um, are interested in these programs probably know someone who's a pharmacist, not that you have to, but they've, they've kind of gotten a little more knowledge than the average person would have um, about what this career entails. So, um, but, you know, you don't really have to do that. You can certainly uh, talk to your local pharmacist or something and find out about the career, but uh, it's, it's kind of, it is so specialized, so it's unusual. So, um, a lot of times students in high school who are interested in this were probably pretty strong science students overall. They liked chemistry. They liked biology. Um, they, it's not, you know, it's for students who are definitely interested in going into a healthcare field, um, but they don't have to be quite as high as a student who's, say, looking at the top medical programs. So probably the profile in terms of grades would be kind of an A minus B plus kind of student in some AP classes, some honors courses in high school. Certainly, it would be preferred to be in, in advanced placement kind of classes in their sciences. Um, but still, you want to stick with that well-rounded core curriculum in, in high school. Uh, the students are probably doing pretty well on their standardized testing. Um, I think for the programs to be successful, I, most students I've seen have been at least in the high 600s out of 800 on each section of the SATs probably more likely to be in sort of the low 700s on each section. Um, And some of the accelerated programs particularly ask for 
uh, about 25 to 50 hours in volunteer hours in a healthcare mm. kind of field. And so that could be working at your hospital. They prefer you to actually, they say pretty clearly that they'd prefer students who can shadow a pharmacist. Um, and I found that students who, you know, oftentimes go to sort of their local chain pharmacy don't get a lot of, um, they don't get a lot of opportunities there because a lot of chain pharmacies will have um, policies against, you know, having, for right, the right reasons, having a 16-year-old back there and, and looking at right. the drugs. Right. Um, but it, sometimes they can find a little more luck with talking to your local sort of mom-and-pop pharmacy. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe finding someone who would let them come in for two hours and, you know, work the cash register or something like that. Or it, they could do some hospital volunteer work and, and try and get some hospital volunteer work that's particularly maybe um, working within the hospital pharmacy or something like that. Again, there's some age limitations there that can sometimes be a barrier. Um, but, um, but that's kind of what the, the programs are generally looking for. Sure. And I mean, just like any job or applying to college, I mean, you got to throw a few darts to see what sticks um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, try a lot of different areas. Um, now, the life of the pharmacist is um, a pretty interesting one. I have a friend from high school who's a pharmacist and she actually um, loves it because it's super flexible. She works mm-hmm. as like a temp for three to four months of the year and then she travels for two months and then she comes mm-hmm. back and works some more. Um, what, what, what can students do to sort of get a sense for what that pharmacy lifestyle sort of looks like or just get yes. that experience of it beyond the, I mean, shadowing is one thing, but is there a resource or research that they can investigate that will help them to see what, it, what the life might be like? Sure. I mean, they can certainly look at within their, there's a, every state has a credentialing agency for pharmacy. And so somebody has to be, after they graduate with a doctor of pharmacy, they have to be credentialed. They have to take a test to, to become a, a licensed pharmacist in that state. So you could look at some of the, the credentialing and professional organizations in your state. Um, mm-hmm. I would also say, you know, the more people you talk to about a career, the better. So although you may not be able to um, go in and shadow the person at your local CVS or Walgreens or whatever, um, you could still go in and sort of just talk to them, you know, say, can I just talk to you for 15 minutes? And they probably, most places they'd be, you know, people like talking about their jobs. So most places right. would be pretty open to that. And, and to be clear, it's not just working at a local pharmacy store that this career path could be leading to. It could also be working in a hospital pharmacy. Um, it could be working, I, I live in northern New Jersey, we're sort of the pharmaceutical or one of the pharmaceutical capitals of the U.S., so there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies around here that certainly hire people who have doctors in pharmacy to do research, um, to do pharmaceutical sales. Um, so there's a lot of career paths that doesn't just have to be working at the local store in pharmacy, although that is a great path too because, as you mentioned, flexible hours um, and you can kind of make your own schedule yeah. a lot of times. Yeah, but I mean, it's great advice just to ask questions, talk to people. Um, you know, if you're really curious about something as a possible profession, it's a great uh, idea to, to talk from some people who are doing that on a daily basis. Um, just for, you know, any students that are looking at these kind of programs or wanting to research them, where are they located? How can they get started on the research? What are mm-hmm. your sort of short tips? And we've got about 30 seconds. Uh, sure. Wh- where would you have students look? Yeah, so I would recommend, I always recommend um, the College Navigator through the National uh, Center for Education Statistics website. So uh, that website is nces.ed.gov. 
um, and then College Navigator. And so what you can do there is you can put in pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences um, in a college search feature, and uh, you can find out what colleges offer this. About 30 colleges offer a bachelor's in pharmacy or pharmaceutical sciences, and about 128 um, offer the doctor of pharmacy. So it is rather specialized, and you can kind of see the mix of some really small specialized pharmacy programs and some really large universities like Ohio State um, or University of Connecticut that offer them, UC Davis, UC Irvine, um, mm-hmm. that would sort of be comprehensive universities that offer everything, and then some are the more specialized programs. So- Great. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Mary Sue. That's terrific advice, and I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to have you on the show this week. Thanks. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. Uh, I hope you found it to be useful and stimulating. We're sure to enjoy putting these shows out for you. Next week is Christmas Eve, but we'll be presenting you with new content all the same, managing those early responses from colleges. Lauren Randall returns to the show to talk about deferrals. It's not necessarily the coal in your stocking you thought it was. And Karen Spencer will discuss what you should do when you're accepted ED or EA. Aside from a little dance, of course. Uh, we'll also be- welcome Beth Feinberg Pe- Keenan to talk um, all about the role of assets in the EFC. So that'll be a great companion piece to today's conversation with Tara, no doubt. Um, I won't be hosting again until February. So Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all. Best wishes for 2016. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In. A College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.